So, since we're dropping into John 6, 35-59, which is the passage for this morning, I thought it would be helpful uh, to first set the scene. Uh, it, Nathan Chambers actually did this already, but, um, but it's good to remember what's happened. I'm going to stress something else that happens here, because what precedes John chapter 6, verse 1-34 through 34, is that Jesus draws an exceptionally large crowd of individuals to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And as we read, they are seated and they hear his teachings. And Jesus breaks bread, the bread of a child's lunch of a few barley loaves and a few fish. And it miraculously feeds all 5,000 men, not including the women and children that are there. Well, the reason that this is an important background context for the text we're about to read is because a startling shift occurs between that text, which uh, for us is John uh, 6, 1 through 34, and the text that we're about to read, which is John 6, 1, uh, sorry, John 6, 35 uh, through the end of um, uh, verse 59. And the shift is this, that Jesus goes from drawing a crowd of 5,000 plus people on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee to presenting teachings in Capernaum, which is his home base, that drives away everyone except for 12. The teachings we're about to read were so disturbing to the audience that everyone left him. Everyone left him. So with that in mind, let's pray and then we'll open God's word together. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would encourage us today with the message your son spoke to his people 2,000 years ago. Would you enlighten our minds with the knowledge of Christ through the Holy Spirit And would you give us a willingness to be humble as those who are hungry and thirsty for more? As a people that are not able to fill uh, this void internally, sense of meaning and desire that only you're able to give, I pray that you would help us to know ourselves as people who've received the gift of incalculable value in the work uh, that you have done. Make yourself known to us, we pray. Amen. Let's read the text. John 6, 35 through 59. It says this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. 
So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's a good question. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds, whoever gorges themselves on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of our Lord. So I want to say that the text that we just read this morning intuitively produces, introduces a problem. doesn't produce the problem. It introduces it. It offers a solution, and it explains how that solution is applied. Now, first we'll start with that problem. The problem is that we as humans have an unresolved hunger. We have an unresolved hunger. Second, the solution, the bread of life satisfies. The bread of life satisfies. Third, the application of that solution, the bread of life unsettles. The bread of life unsettles. These are the three main things. Uh, for those of you children who know that a sermon usually has three points, these are the three points. Humans have an unresolved hunger, the bread of life satisfies, and the bread of life unsettles. First, we'll start with that first point. First, we have uh, unresolved hunger. We're going to take a moment to consider the metaphor of hungering and thirsting. The primary metaphor of this section leverages and presumes absence. To hunger and to thirst is to be without something. To desire satisfaction 
and to not have it, to ache for something that's missing. And every one of us have been born with the desire for something more that cannot be fulfilled in our everyday activities, leisures, positions of power, labors, or relationships that are available to us. There's this absence of something deeper and truly spiritually fulfilling that we experience in our lives. And it's because we cannot live on bread alone. Throughout the history of humanity, authors, poets, songwriters, authors, and philosophers have written about this unresolved hunger. And furthermore, worldviews, religions, philosophies, corporations, relationships, and cultures have been formed in response to this universal hunger that we have for more than the world has to offer. Uh, Blaise Pascal, one Christian philosopher, puts it this way when he says, There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man who cannot be satisfied by anything but only by God, the Creator. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the hearts of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God, the Creator. Though there's a, and I only bring this up because there's a near universal agreement to this problem that Jesus uses this metaphor to address. And I, I want to point out also that with this near universal agreement has come uh, many solutions throughout the history of religion. Buddhism says you overcome this hunger by becoming blind to it. But that doesn't work with real food. At some point you need to eat. Albert Camus, an existential philosopher, says you overcome hunger by making peace with its absurdity, laying aside those deeper desires for truth. There's nothing real. We make our own meaning. You move through with this life and you decompose this organic material. That's it. That's all there is to it. It's a bit depressing. Muslims... A good friend of mine is a converted Muslim, and he put it this way. He said, I attempted to overcome my existential hunger by my invasive labors, my intensive labors of obedience. But by his own confession, he recognized he fell so far short of the standard of God that he lived in constant fear of him. What Jesus presents in this text, I think is that this hunger that we all experience is good and is intended to be fulfilled. It's good and it's intended to be fulfilled in Christ. Which brings us to our second point. The bread of life satisfies. Let's look again at verses 41 through 51. Verses 41 through 51. The bread of life satisfies. It says this, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Speaking of himself here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus' claim to us and to his intended audience is that he is the bread of life who satisfies the hunger and slakes the thirst of those who come to him. And I want to point out two ways in which Jesus, the bread of life, satisfies in this passage. And I'm going to do so by using two terms that C.S. Lewis develops. Uh, Jesus satisfies in a clear sense. Jesus satisfies in a clear sense. And Jesus satisfies in a thick sense. In a thick sense. And you're probably wondering, what on earth is this guy talking about? (laughs) Clear and thick. Where does this come from? Well, actually, I'll bring about the quote and definition that he uses. uh, But he used it when he was reflecting on soup. You have clear soups, thin soups, and you have thick soups. Uh, More hearty soups for the winter. Anyways, let me define these two terms. By a clear sense, C.S. Lewis means those things which are philosophical, ethical, and universalizing. Those things which are intellectually coherent and stimulating. But by a thick sense, he means those things which include blood and sacrifice and ritual. Now, C.S. Lewis argued that if there was a true religion... It must be both thick and clear, because he says the true God must have made both the child and the man, the savage and the citizen, the head and the belly. And Christianity takes a savage convert and tells that person to obey an enlightened universalist ethic as presented in the scriptures. It also takes an academic and it tells them to go fasting to a mystery And to drink the blood of the Lord. It is thick and clear. Let's look at those both individually. The bread of life satisfies in a clear sense. It's intellectually stimulating and it answers the questions of humanity in a cohesive system of thought. It satisfies some of the major questions of the human mind. And some of the questions throughout the history of philosophy have looked like this when you boil them down. If there is a God... How can we know him? If there was a God, why would he make himself known? What do we do about the problem of mortality? Is it even a problem? If God is real, can we trust him? Now Jesus in this passage presents a portion of the cohesive Christian philosophy which sets this religion apart from every other religion. Jesus in our passage today affirms, yes, there is a God, No, we can't get to him. We actually need God himself to come down, to become incarnate, to purchase us for himself so that we might be brought up. Only God can make God known and only God can redeem us. That's the teachings of this passage. But the bread of life, and we could go on further if we want to talk about individual uh, philosophical claims and how I think this passage is a good um, uh, teaching that corrects many of those things, but we're not here just to do that. We've got to move on to our next, uh, the thick sense. 
Um, because the Bible isn't just presenting something that is a hypothesis. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a standard of living. It's real. It's tactile. It's physical. And it's historical. Which brings us to that second sense, the thick sense. We as physical embodied creatures need more than a philosophy. Regardless of what our cultural context says right this moment, we have embodied guilt. And guilt, we oftentimes, when we talk about guilt, we talk about it as a feeling, right? I feel guilty. But historically, this term is not meant or referred to a feeling. It's referred to a legal deficit. If you run a stop sign and a police officer sees you, it's not enough to look in your mirror at your own face and say, it's okay, I forgive you for running the stop sign. We have to offer up an embodied payment to that officer for the state before we're right in the eyes of the state again because we had an embodied legal deficit. We were guilty. Now, the system that God set up in the ancient Near East for his people in dealing with the actual guilt of breaking the moral law was sacrifice. And interestingly enough, our passage today does hint at Jesus' sacrifice. It doesn't just hint at it. It's fairly clear. John chapter 6 does start by reminding people that the Passover feast is coming. And the entire chapter that we've, or the section that we've read, is colored by this reality. And for those of you who don't remember what the Passover feast was, it was an appointed feast where a lamb would be taken for each household and would be killed at twilight. It'd be roasted and consumed and eaten in haste in the remembrance of the Lord's grace in passing over the houses of his people in Egypt and not killing their firstborn. And the blood of the Lamb for the people of God becomes a sign that reminds them of the Lord's grace in sparing them and setting his people free. Do you know what John the Baptist calls Jesus when he sees him in John 1? What he exclaims? He says, The Lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world. The imagery of the Passover is being utilized and replaced in this text that we're reading. And the Lamb of God is coming as a sacrifice to buy his people back, to pay the deficit owed, to redeem them, and to claim them. But the cost, the cost is disturbing. The cost is unsettling. The cost for this passage is the flesh of an incarnate God. Jesus says the bread that he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. Christianity is not just a clear religion. It cannot just be presented in some ethereal, ethical, abstracted, philosophical sense. Christianity is not a Western construct. And we find oftentimes that the Bible is thick. It is thick with blood and with ritual and with sacrifice. It's built on death and on life, on spirit and the flesh, on the stomach and the mind. And this leads us to the third point. The bread of life unsettles. The bread of life unsettles. 
In order to take the teachings of Jesus seriously without moving too quickly or passing over the text, we're going to find that many of his teachings, like this one today, are unsettling. Remember, Jesus in this short dialogue that we read managed to go from 5,000 plus people to only 12. Everyone leaves him at this point. So let's turn back again to John 6:52 through 58. Be reminded of what it is that he says that's disturbing. It says this, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, "How can this man give us his flesh to eat?" So Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds, and the Greek word here is trogo, which is also used to describe the sounds of animals feasting on the carcasses of other animals. So whoever gorges themselves on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. The metaphor is disturbing, but in order to receive the depth of what's occurring, it helps us to sit in the discomfort of the passage. And to further aid us in that, I was, uh, you might have seen that I came up here with a children's book. Uh, if any of you are feeling sleepy, here, here's a children's book. Uh, my daughter, who at the time she showed me this book, she was four, and now she's five, um, brought me this book. It was from the library. We didn't uh, check it before reading it. And, you know, every night before bed, we read children's books together. And uh, she, she brought this to me one night. I was like, Daddy, will you read me this book? Can I see it? I'm like, oh, you're going to love this book. Look, there's like a shark, and he's got a little beret on top, and a flounder, and he's eating a squid, and he's seated at a table, and you've got a nice little crab with a fancy waiter's mustache and all this good stuff. You're going to love this book, Hazel. And we open it up, and oh, there's a mink whale and a sperm whale and a humpback whale. You're probably wondering where I'm going with this. It'll all be very clear. Uh, and if any of you are disturbed by carcasses, uh, just plug your ears and close your eyes, uh, because what we didn't expect was the cover page, uh, which is, uh, you have this whale at the bottom of the ocean, and its eyes are shut, and there are chunks missing out of his body, and I close the book, and I'm like, Hazel, did you see that? And she's like, yeah. I was like, did you, you know that whale's dead, right? She's like, yeah. I'm like, are you sure you want to read this? And she's like, yeah, I want to read this book. So, she's like, buckle yourself in. Here we go. And we find out, I didn't know this before, but a whale fall is the name for when a whale's carcass begins to sink to the bottom of the ocean. And you're probably thinking, why on earth does it have its own name? Well, the body of a whale presents an immense amount of food. A small orca whale, we learned from this book, represents around 3,300 pounds uh, if it's small. But a blue whale 
you're talking about a whopping 330,000 pounds of flesh and blubber. And we found further, as the, it sinks, that there's different stages of the consumption of this whale. Uh, the first stage, you have sharks and barracudas. They smell the decaying carcass as it begins to sink to the bottom of the ocean. Um, if you're disturbed, I'm, I'm getting a sick pleasure out of it. Um, and as it sits at the bottom of the ocean, these hagfish and other sorts of scavengers come from all around to feast on the body of this whale. And over time, actually I won't keep going. Um, over time, what we see is that the body, it takes about two years for the body of the whale to be stripped down to just its bones. And, but that's not the end of it. You're, you might think, wow, two years, this one body fed innumerable creatures in the benthic zone, the darkest uh, section of the ocean. Um, but it doesn't stop there. The body of a whale feeds creatures for about two years, but its bones produce a structure that other sorts of worms feed on and latch onto, and it creates an environment that allows predators to flee from, or not predators, uh, victims of predators, to flee from the predators. And in the death of a whale, their bodies nourish and comfort not just for two years, but for up to a millennia. The body of a whale can produce an impact in an ecosystem for up to a millennia. Their bones offer respite and protection. In their death, they provide life. And what I want to say is that the Jesus of this passage is the greater whale. Jesus is the greater whale. If the body of a whale can create a thousand-year ecosystem... What can the body of a God create? What can the body of a God create? The whale fell from one level of the ocean to the bottom, not of its own will, but by nature of its death. The greater whale, Jesus, willingly came down from heaven to create an ecosystem of life by his conscious sacrifice. The whale dies, and that's the end of its life. But the greater whale, Jesus, comes back to life again and swims with the creatures he nourished by his body and blood and offers us the same life that he has. Jesus, in this passage, invites us into the ecosystem that he is creating. But as we enter this ecosystem, we have to relearn how to eat. <laughs> Because we, brothers, sisters, fathers, and mothers, have a spiritual eating disorder. And in order to realize it, we have to allow ourselves to be unsettled by the bread of life. Because we have a tendency to look to our marriages, to our parenting styles, to education, to control, to power, to political preferences to numbing agents, to beauty, to financial security, to new toys or trends as a way to fill the void that we experience. But that is not the bread of life. In an eating disorder, a person begins to see good, true food as disturbing and grotesque. We, on the other hand, have to learn to feast 
on the body and blood of Jesus. To allow that to be the thing that identifies us, the core of who we are, to allow that to be our nourishment, now and forevermore. And many of you have at this point in the sermon probably thought of the Lord's Supper. And what I want to be very clear on here is uh, this, that this is not a theology of the Lord's Supper, but rather the theology of this passage finds its greatest representation in the Lord's Supper. Because what we're going to, I'm guessing we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Yes, I'm getting nods. Um, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be partaking in a beautiful image of the union that we receive in Christ from him, his gift to us. And if you are here today, if you are suffering, if you feel the aches and pains of the hunger that's built into you, if you're reeling from the brokenness of this world and the effects of sin, of your sin and the sins of others, then please draw near to Jesus. Consider this meal. Remember what it is that he offers. Let us become unsettled and shaken by the beautiful teachings of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've drawn us here. We thank you that you taught in such a way as to cause us to pause, to force us to think more deeply about this world and your teachings. We thank you for your word. And Jesus, we thank you that you saw it fitting to become a man so that you might make yourself the Father, yourself and the Father known to us and that you might offer us the bread of life. Spirit, would you shake us up and unsettle us? Would you grow us more and more reliant on you in our day-to-day lives? We need you always. In your name we pray. Amen.